Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book seven of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, part two, chapters one through four. Let's start the show. Back together again, the quartet catches up on their various adventures and comes up with a plan for what they'll do next, all while being served by Nigel, the robot that Susanna blinded and is now acting a bit oddly. Little do they know that they are being watched by Mordred, who is shifting between his spider form and that of an infant. Before Mordred can attack the quartet, he's confronted by Randall Flagg, Slash Martin, Slash Walter O'Dim, Slash Walter Padrick. It doesn't end well for one of them. This section ends with the quartet going through the door to Thunderclap, where they encounter three strangers who recognize them as gunslingers. Jay, there is quite a bit happening in these four chapters. A lot of it is plot exposition and the characters telling each other stories of what's happened, coming up with a plan. We get a lot about the rules of what's happening with Mordred, a lot of details about the world here with some actual action that moves forward. One of the people who does not appear in this section is Stephen King as a character, and yet he's riddled throughout this section. Yeah. We see references to him, references to his books, and like explicit references. It's not just hidden stuff that King the writer is putting in, but Nigel the robot indicates that he's reading The Dead Zone. And they end up in the quartet ends up in a library where they see all of Stephen King's books, except for the Dark Tower books. And he seems to hover over this whole section with an aura of importance that I wasn't really expecting after he sort of seemed to have dropped out of the story earlier on. His aura of importance that you, as you put it, uh, kind of comes through as in this really awkward writing style that he employs. He's done a little bit of the switching narrators very suddenly kind of thing before, but here he does it a lot. And he also does this thing where he just suddenly just starts addressing us directly. And the first time that it happened, it completely threw me out of the story. I was like, wait, wait, what is happening right now? Who's talking? Whose point of view do we have? What characters are we even referencing at this point? And it took me in, you know, until a little while before I realized what he was up to. And once I understood what he was doing. I wasn't really a fan of it, but I went along with it and it worked okay. But I just, why is he doing it this way? Why is he writing this way? It just seems weird, if not just flat out bad. Yeah. I mean, part of it is that we've been told that Stephen King, the character from Susanna's perspective, has died. Like she has in her vision. She hears a news report saying that he's been hit by a, a van and dies. Later on in this section, Randall Flagg says that he knows that King only has 200 hours to live before things end for him. Right. We're told that his work is going to remain unfinished, that he's thought about the next, the last three novels in the series, but he hasn't written them. So there's all that hanging over the book that this is important that King needs to survive. King's the one who's provided them with the turtle. 
with these little pieces of plot to get them to where they are and, and keep them alive, whether it be the key card or the actual key that they carve or the, the scrimshaw turtle. All these things were put there by King. So there's that piece. So we're reminded that King as the writer is important, but then King as a writer coming through, like you said, it draws attention to it. And you know, one example that I would point out is when after we realize that Flag is about to die, King says that Flag was quasi-immortal, and then in a parentheses puts as if that means anything sort of like most unique. And it's like, wow, what what are you doing here? Like you're really drawing attention to the fact that you're using words that you probably shouldn't be using. There's a, a, a more subtle way to do that. Why, why even draw attention to that? It is odd and unlike King, I think. Yeah, I mean, if we give him the benefit of the doubt that everything he does on the page is entirely deliberate, then we are left to wonder, what effect is he going for here? So far, my only reaction to this is, that's kind of strange. It feels unlike King. I'm puzzled. Yeah. It doesn't make me feel a, a specific way about the characters or the events that are taking place on the page, except that I'm like, he could have done a better job. You know? Yeah. King is a really good writer, I think, overall, and he knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. So I do think we have to give him some benefit of the doubt, but it really throws me out of the book. And maybe that's the point to realize that this is a work of fiction and we get back to that metafictional piece that we've done before. The other odd part about that is that long aside with Eddie, when he's talking about the Doisex Machina and how, for some reason in my head, I think Eddie knows what that is. He's talked about it before, but he seems to be struggling with the words there. But we get what? Almost like a whole page where yeah, where he's described it and, and saying, oh, well, the writer can do anything. And it makes me wonder what's going to happen as we get further into this book, knowing that Eddie thinks King has put these things in the story to help us move along. Mm -hmm. He is the writer, sort of the puppet master or the god creating these things. He is literally the the god in the machine. He is the writer who's creating these things. Right. And it makes me wonder, do any of these characters have free will? Is anything that happens to them, do we realize, oh, that's going to be solved because King is able to give them the tools they need? I, I just don't know. Your question about the free will is really interesting. I want to come back to that in a sec. But King has hung lanterns on so many things along the way here in all of the books leading up to this point. And here, like you said, Eddie spends a whole page of the book giving us a concise somewhat concise definition of <laughs> deus ex machina, everything except the term itself. And this is King hanging the biggest lantern that he could find on the technique of deus ex machina so that he could use it to any extent that he sees fit from here to the end of the book. It, he didn't hang a lantern on it. He set it on fire. <laughs> yep. He just doused it in kerosene and threw in a match. This is the first step towards a gigantic deus ex machina. The, this is that Monty Python foot coming down. And, <laughs> or the literal hand of God coming down at the end of another Stephen King book that you might know the name of. This is not something new for King. And I think this is him just turning up the volume a little bit. But as far as free will goes, I think that's a fascinating question because we have been dealing with this concept of Ka since, what, 
book two. Yep. And we've often debated, is Ka something that is akin to predetermination or predestination? Or is it the wheel ruts in the road, you know, on the wagon trail, that if you push hard enough, you could get off of it. But for the most part, you just stay on that track. And that is the timeless debate of free will versus destiny, Mm -hmm. essentially. So does King, the real person, the author who wrote these books, exercising whatever he wishes, setting that aside, does King, the character in the books, who is creating this world through the the force of Ka and the force of the white, does that allow him to have any free will? And do, do the characters that he creates in that fashion have any free will? I have no idea, but that's a great question. Yeah. There are so many layers here of control and creation and control and creation. Like, where does it begin? Where does it end? So you mentioned a another Stephen King book in which there is a literal hand of God. And of course, that is a direct reference to The Stand. Mm-hmm. King himself mentions it in passing when we see Flag. He says, here's somebody who on another level of the tower has destroyed a whole world. And that is obviously a reference to Flag in The Stand. That brings us to the discussion of Flag because we haven't seen this character for three books, four if you count our side journey. Oh, I guess he is in Wind Through the Keyhole. We get clarity here that Flag is all the people we thought he was. Yes. It's actually written down. He is Walter O'Dim. He was on the Golgotha with Roland. He was Martin. He seduced Roland's mother. Mm-hmm. He is all of those people. And he faces off against Mordred in what seems to be baddie versus baddie. And obviously he loses that one. Yeah. The baby spider is able to uh, really outsmart and outwit and really out horrify anything that, that Flag has done. And I wonder in this, if somebody who has not read The Stand, would they realize how really the magnitude of flag does he have that importance because somebody like me who's read the stand multiple times and was my favorite book growing up i mean flag is a badass he's a very cool character as well i think anybody who watched the abc miniseries back in the 90s just has that jamie sheridan with his jean jacket strolling down the road like and ah, a couple stuck. of black feathers stuck in his hair yeah the walking dude man like every you know like he he has this certain mythos in king's fiction i wonder if people get that sense if they've not read the stand and read the dark tower and i realize that the venn diagram of people who have read the dark tower but not the stand is probably very few and far between but they do exist and i just wonder like does does this character have the same impact on them assuming that you have somehow read all of these Dark Tower books and not The Stand, which, uh, you know, to your point, seems very unlikely. Although we know somebody, Jay. Okay. We work with somebody who is that person. Shh. I think that King knows that it is very likely that whoever's reading this book right now has read The Stand. It just seems completely bonkers to him, perhaps, that you've gotten this far in the Dark Tower books You've been introduced to versions of this character. There have been really, really strong hints. And then in book four, we know for sure that there's at least a strong connection to this Captain Tripp's story. Yep. So even if you're not 100% sure that Flag is Walter or the man in black or whatever you want to call him, at least we know that there is another story that takes place in the stand that is very much connected to this, right? So 
I don't know, is it fair for King to leverage that knowledge from another book, even though it is connected here in such a way? Because the character that we've known as Martin Broadcloak was like a conniving advisor to a king, basically. Yep. He was a mischief maker. And then the man in black who was fleeing across the desert, he's another mischievous, like kind of puck like character. He seems to have the ability to do magic, cast spells, and influence people, and he seems to have the gift of a long life. But aside from that, he doesn't seem to be like this cosmic level evil entity or this grand you know, villain that he is in The Stand. We kind of get the sense just within the Dark Tower volumes that he's a force to be reckoned with, but he's not just pure evil. He's not just mm. wickedness incarnate. So when we see this final confrontation, the end of his story, and he's faced off against a character we've just met a few chapters ago, it feels kind of hollow and empty, especially if you don't think back to all the terrible things he did in The Stand. So it's like, oh, he's just that guy who's sort of been poking Roland in the eye with a sharp stick every once in a while. But aside from that, he just sort of titters and laughs and causes mischief. He's not so bad. Well, except for goading Roland into letting Jake die and being part of the plot to cause Roland to shoot his mother. But yeah, other than that, yeah, he's just a trickster character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the funny thing is I was kind of rooting for him to get away in this scene when, you know, Mordred seems to have the best of flag and he's, you know, surreptitiously reading his mind and figuring out all of flag's intentions. But I still kept thinking he's going to get away with it. He might be scarred. He might be damaged, but he's going to live and leave and get out of this room and then still be in the world, still be somewhere to come back later and menace our characters later. I was really hoping that that would happen and it doesn't. Yeah. But it's so weird that maybe it's because I don't really yet care that much about Mordred, the character, but I know Flag, I know Martin Broadcloak or Walter O'Dim or whatever his name is. I like his character so much. He's our antagonist in a lot of ways, but he's a great antagonist. Keep him in the story longer. Keep him around. Make him suffer, but don't don't end him. Yeah, so King subverted our expectations a couple times in this story already. So we were expecting Father Callahan to be able to at least confront his maker and Stephen King. And he, of course, died before that happened early on in this book. And now especially after flag monologues for a while. You know, you expect your villain to monologue and then face off against the good guy. And in this case, he monologues about what his big plans are to get to the tower and how much he hates Roland, and we don't even get that chance. He's sort of cut down early on. And I wonder if this is King trying to be the transitive property of getting us to, like, if you think Randall Flagg is a badass, look at this guy who can take care of Flagg with not much of a problem. This is the person you should really be scared of. Yeah. But again, I agree with you. As of right now, he's not as interesting of a character as Flagg is. And we'll pour one out for Flagg. We hardly knew you. So what do you think about Flagg, though, in in terms of his uh, relationship with Roland, at least how it's set up here? You know, he doesn't seem to be pure evil. You've You've used the word trickster and puck-like. I mean, I sort of got a sense that they were on the opposite side of, in D&D terms, lawfulness and chaotic natures, hmm. that they weren't necessarily good versus evil, but more of the gunslingers are the people who keep the peace, who 
follow the laws, who have a very strict society, and Flag seems to be more of a, I'm just going to mess with things just to mess with them and cause chaos throughout the land. They, you know, I think even he calls himself a mercenary at some point, or maybe Mordred calls him a mercenary and how he's playing all the sides. So that's how sort of how I viewed him. Did you have any thoughts on that? I was struggling with the nature of the relationship between Flag and Roland in terms of how, what are they to each other? Mm. They're not brothers. They're not of the same ilk. They don't come from the same place. They have almost the same goal. They both want to reach the tower, but for slightly different reasons, or maybe very different reasons. But they're both determined to meet their goal by any means necessary. Look at all of the things that Roland has done. Imagine all the things he's willing to do. Roland even chastises himself and he, he thinks back to all of the things he's done, all the atrocities that he's committed himself in his pursuit of the tower. And how far is he willing to go with new atrocities mm. to continue on that quest? In that sense, it's like, you know, the the James Bond villain saying in his monologue, like, you know, Bond, you and I are the same. We both <laughs> want the same thing. I'm just going about it in a slightly different way. You could kind of say that about Flag and Roland, but they're not polar opposites. They're not working against each other. They're working towards a similar goal. And only when they come in conflict with one another do they have it out. They're basically separate operators on the stage. They just keep knocking into each other like billiard balls every once in a while. And and uh, and when they do, there's a, a bit of conflict. But yeah, they're not enemies. Flag isn't Roland's foil. It's not like one's the protagonist and one is the antagonist. And they're always just like battle to the end. It's... Uh, I, I struggle with that. And it's too bad because, again, Flag is an interesting character. We don't get to see a showdown between these two. And it seems like we're not going to unless by some miraculous deus ex machina, he comes back to life somehow, I suppose, and is able to take it on. But it it seems after being devoured by uh, Mordred that that's not going to happen. So that does bring us to Mordred. Yeah. Who is set up to be, I mean, we know his relationship to Roland. Roland is one of two fathers to Morgred. Mm -hmm. And we get this understanding that he has a dual nature. It's pretty obvious that he's either a spider or a human or some combination of the two of them at times, but th that's been made clear up until this point. This section is the first time when we are inside the thought process of Morgred and trying to get an understanding of what he is wanting and what he is looking for. And really what he wants is the death of Roland. That's also why he was brought into the world. Like Sayer has said that that's why they're bringing him in the world is to kill Morgred. And that's part of it. So that's, that, that's where we've gotten to at this point. And yet when we see Morgred, he seems to be in conflict with that. He's not totally evil, or at least he is confused by his emotions, especially when he is, is in his human form. He talks about how his emotions are complex, confusing. When, when he's a spider, he's not. It's just animalistic urges to eat, to feed, to rape, to devour, to kill. And that's really all he thinks about when he's a spider. But when he's the, the human, he starts to understand like, oh, I have envy and anger and 
even love to some extent, but he does have that. Mm-hmm. Where do we go with Mortar? I mean, do we sense that there's going to be a, a conflict within him at this point, or is this all going to be just sort of, hey, there's just going to be a, a face down at some point between Roland and Mordred? Yeah, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question, but I think it's interesting that King chose to represent Mordred's accelerated growth, I guess, in this way, that he has allowed his intellect to advance well beyond his physical form. Mm. When he's in his human form, he's in the body of like a one or two-year-old baby, right? Yep. So he has all of the physical weakness of a child that size, and he can't talk yet and all that. So he's, his mind is much older than that. So he can think in these complex ideas. He has this ability to think about himself and be introspective and think about how he fits into the world and what he wants and how he should be able to achieve it. But he also doesn't understand or have the ability to control all of these emotions that you you mentioned that he feels because he is still so new. His consciousness is still so new. It's not that it's young, it's just that it's unpracticed. Mm. If he didn't have this dual physical form, I don't even know if this would be at all interesting, except that he's just a baby growing quickly. Yeah. We do get his perspective. We get a Mordred point of view here. And it's kind of cool to see that his mind is much more mature than his body. But beyond that, I don't know why King did that necessarily. Mm. Just make him grow. Yeah. If you want him to be able to have this confrontation with Flag, you know, make him a teenager by the time Flag walks in the room. And then he can like punch Flag in the face with his human hand and then <laughs> just something. I don't know. It is odd that we spend all this time with what is basically a infant. Mm-hmm. Obviously, part of how he has this knowledge is it seems like once he devours a person, he seems to gain their memories and knowledge. We're told that he gets. 1500 years worth of flags knowledge when he's devoured and he is able to know things that Mia knew. And that's how he's able to understand his place in the world and who Roland is and what he means to him, etc. But to your point, it is odd that we spend all this time with him as a baby, like some weird Benjamin Button type thing. Yeah. A Benjamin Button with a spider opportunity. And th- he's got these wounds from when Susanna shot him, etc. The one thing that I feel is most interesting about Mordred is how he has placed himself outside of this circle. He seems to be envious of the quartet that exists. Mm -hmm. He points out a couple times about how they always sit in a circle. And even when they're not doing it intentionally, it just sort of comes naturally to them that they all face each other and have this. I think King even uses the word fellowship. Yeah. Obviously hearkening back to Tolkien. Mordred sees himself as an outsider without that or away from that, that he is the animal predator and they are the human fellowship that's together. He plays that up, that he feels like he'll never be part of that circle. He'll always be on the outside and he'll never be the son of Roland or the brother of Eddie and Jake and the son, mother of Susanna, however that would be. Right. And he also plays up that animal, like I'll be on the outside and they'll always know that something's looking at them in the dark. While that seems like it would be interesting, and I wonder if we'll get an opportunity to see that, I just don't know if it's actually 
doable because even Mordred says, ah, but as soon as they see me, they're probably going to shoot me. Which seems right. Yeah, right. Yeah, it seems totally right. Like, oh, yeah, there was this, I mean, Susanna saw this spider creature eat Mia and it looks horrible. Like, yeah, I'm going to try to shoot it again. And I, I wish if I hadn't paused for a half a second, I would have killed it the first time. And Roland has said, like, there's a new player on the scene that we need to take care of. It doesn't seem like the Crimson King is the problem anymore. Mm-hmm. It seems like Mordred is. Like, they all seem to know this. So, yeah, it does seem like we've got this setup that it could be interesting. But eh, if we see this giant seven-legged spider come to us that's really gross looking, we're probably just going to kill it on sight. I don't know how much that's going to get played out. I thought it was kind of fascinating that there's this connection between his two forms in terms of the wound where when Susanna shot him, she missed her target of his head and shot off one of his spider legs. Yeah. And so when he changes into his human form, he has a gouge that won't seem to heal in his side where that leg would have protruded from as a spider. Right. For some reason, though, even though he magically switches back and forth between forms, when he changes back to the spider, he doesn't magically form that leg again. It's just always gone forever. But When Flag walked in the room and he had that moment of internal monologue where he's talking about how he was going to take the severed foot of Mordred to use as a key to open the door because it had the birthmark, I thought he meant that he had already picked up the spider leg (laughs) from the other room and he had it in his gunna and is like, oh, so all he's here is to like kill Mordred just to set him aside and then continue on his on his journey but then i realized no no he he means the baby's foot that he's looking at right now with the birthmark on it yes. <laughs> not that you already shot off leg you know i'm picturing like this you know king crab leg type of thing like in uh <laughs> in flag's duffel bag and uh nope that's not what he what he was talking about at all my wife i think the only stephen king book that she has read is on writing which she enjoyed a great deal and actually taught in one of her classes once. But her favorite Stephen King movie is Silver Bullet. And what you had just said about how the switching between the human and the spider nature of Mordred, the wounds exist. You'll remember that the priest who is the werewolf in Silver Bullet, when he is shot in werewolf form, he loses an eye. And that's how they recognize him because he has a a patch on his eye when he's the priest Mm. the next day. These are the rules of the were creatures, right? Lycanthropy rules, yes. This is a deep cut king going back to his silver bullet days. I think the book was actually Cycle of the Werewolf. Yeah. Which was drawn by Bernie Wrightinson, who is the illustrator for five. So I'm sure more to come with Mordred. Yeah, I suspect he's not going to get wrapped up in the next chapter. I mean, he seems way too important now. We've been hearing about the Crimson King for a while throughout the last part, half of these books, at least. But every character seems to just sort of write the Crimson King off, right? That, oh, he's insane and he's imprisoned and we don't have to worry about him anymore. You know, Roland says, yeah, we don't have to worry about that. There's a new player on the scene. Flag, the one who convinces Mordred, like, oh, your your father doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. Whether that's the case or not, it just seems odd that we had all this buildup and then all of a sudden, everyone sort of dismisses him. I think that's one of the things about this section that is odd as well that we've talked about, Jay, is that it seems like a lot of characters know things that they didn't know prior to this chapter, and it's unclear to me how they learned those things between part one and part two of this book. But Mia knows some stuff. Roland knows some stuff. It seems like Eddie knows some stuff. 
Flag and Morgard know some stuff. And it's like, hey, did you guys learn these in a offstage somewhere where we didn't know about it? It would have been nice to clue us in. The only one that I would just allow without any hesitation is Flag. He's been around for so long and he's messed with and talked to and collaborated with so many characters in this larger universe that he probably does know this stuff. Yeah. We just haven't been privy to it. Everybody seems to know a little bit too much about things. And they're also, they don't seem to be impressed by anything anymore. Uh, they've seen it all. When they got on to Blaine, they were like, oh, wow, ice sculptures and yada, yada. We spent how many pages in LUD looking at the wonder and the destruction of the wonder? Yep. Look at that thing and it doesn't work. Look at that thing and it doesn't work. We have to figure out how to make this thing work because it's important to the story and we'll spend page after page dealing with that. And that was fun. But here they go into this place with even more splendor, even more technological wonder. And they're just like, all right, let's just keep on moving. All right, <laughs> let's just press this button. Okay, open that door. It just seems so perfunctory. And matter of fact, it feels like a missed opportunity. On the other hand, this book is the longest book in the series. Yeah. It's probably longer than it ought to be. So I shouldn't be asking for King to pack more stuff in. Yeah. This section seemed like it could have been slimmed down a little bit for sure, because there's a lot of talk in the first chapter of, hey, Jake, tell us your story. Susanna, tell us your story. And while they don't tell us to us all, we do get a lot of repetitive stuff here. So mm -hmm. at least we have fun stuff, Jay, because that will always brighten our day because there is what I thought were some really good fun stuff. Yeah. So the content ends up at the library. There are a number of authors who are on the shelves that Eddie and Jake are looking at. We've got Olive Dickens. We've got Steinbeck, Thomas Wolfe, Zane Gray, Max Brand, whoever that is, according to Jake, and Elmore Leonard. Max Brand was a name that I recognized, but I had to look up. It is the pen name of a man who is best known for writing the Dr. Kildare books, which were then made into multiple movies and TV shows over the years. This guy, Max Brand, wrote literally hundreds and hundreds of novels. He was just a machine. Hmm. He had trained himself to write 14 pages a day without fail. So he was just pulp, short stories, etc. He was just pumping out these books. So um I thought that that was an interesting person to bring up. I'm wondering if King felt a kinship to somebody who could write a lot huh. in multiple different genres as well. I found it kind of fascinating that yeah, there was a clear implication that Nigel was not only reading these books, but he would sit in the armchair in this room, in this library, and read like a human would. Right. I'm going to relax my robot bones and curl up with a, uh, with a book. And Eddie says, like, you might sleep standing up, but clearly you like to sit and read like the rest of us. Like, that's kind of a weird little detail to throw in there. And it seemed to mean almost nothing. So it was kind of cool that Nigel would sit down in the one of the armchairs and, and read, you know, Stephen King books. Yeah. And <laughs> read the dead zone. You touched on this a little bit earlier about how King the author and King the character left all of these items that helped the other characters in the story along. He left the, the key that Jake finds. He left the bowling bag. He left the scrimshaw turtle. All these turn into very important devices that our characters needed to get through to the next point in the plot or survive a harrowing moment in the story. This made me think of Bill and Ted, where every time they got stuck 
at some point in their story, they said, well, when we're all done, we're just going to go back in time and then leave the thing we need for now. And then it's like, without fail, everything that they needed just kept showing up. And it was perfect because they could mess with time. And I just like, all right. I don't think King meant to reference Bill and Ted here, but uh, I saw the connection. Yep. The secret code that Morgard and Flag have to get by to enter into Morgard's hiding place is 25413121. Jay, one guess as to what that adds up to. Uh, is it 12? <laughs> it's 19, of course, but at least King is subtle here. So many times he's told us, oh, look. It's close to a number that you know between 18 and 20. This time I actually had to do the math to figure it out, but sure enough, 19. So Roland had another Rolandism where he either couldn't say or didn't quite understand cancer, and he pronounced it as cancer. It's so subtle, you have to see it written down. I had to read it twice to get it. (laughs) Roland was aware of a disease that very much resembled cancer, but uh, called it like black lung or something. Yeah. Can't, sir. So sorry, I can't, sir. So we don't often talk about the illustrations in the book, but there is one facing page 174 by Michael Whelan of the man in black, Randall Flagg, Walter. And he's wearing the hoodie that we talked about earlier. And I guess we didn't talk about, but he has this hoodie, um, which is actually a reference to another Stephen King book, Jay. When he's about to die, Flagg mentions that the hoodie he got was from a deserted house in French Landing, Wisconsin. And it was in a parentheses. I'm like, I wonder why King put that in. Like, why is that the important detail that he got it from this deserted house in French Landing, Wisconsin? Am I supposed to know what that means? And it's actually a reference to where Black House takes place. Mm. That's the sequel to The Talisman by King and Peter Straub. I've never read that book, so that reference was lost on me, but I'm guessing there's a deserted house there that has a whole bunch of hoodies for people to take as needed. Anyhow, in this picture of Flag, and I'd be interested to know who Whelan used as a model for this because the face looks fairly distinctive, but he's got all these buttons on his hoodie. There's the peace symbol, there's the sigil of the Crimson King, there's a button that says CK and it's not a reference to Louis CK, it's a reference to the Crimson King. (laughs) And then what looks to be the watchman smiley face button with the blood trickle this one looks more like a gunshot to the to the head or the the red wound that i guess some of the crimson king's followers have with the blood but it looks a lot like the watchman in it oh yeah anyhow it's a very distinctive illustration that i wanted to point out i'm a little foggy on my black house details but i think what lag was getting at was that there was a hoodie that had this magical property to shield his thoughts. Ah. And he showed that. That's why he had to go get it from there, because it was blocked the mental probing, or he hoped it would. He hoped it would, which it didn't, yes. It's like Magneto's helmet. Ah, there you go. The Black House reference isn't the only uh, literary reference either. The third chapter of this section is called The Shining Wire. And that is a specific reference to a trap that is set for the rabbits in Watership Down by Richard Adams, which is, of course, referenced multiple times throughout this series. So Yes. Also the author of Shardick. Exactly. No wonder Eddie keeps thinking of rabbits every time he sees Shardick. My mind went to The Shining. I think your reference there is a lot more accurate. Yeah. 
Flag mentions a place called Le Casseroy Russe. My pronunciation of that is probably horrible, so apologies to all French-speaking listeners. I guess my rough translation of that is the Castle of the Red King, or the Crimson King, if you will. I decided that if I ever own a country house by a lake, I think I'll name it Le Casseroy Russe. Especially since my last name's Russo, it'd probably be close enough to confuse visitors. Yeah, fair enough. I don't think you need to apologize for butchering the French language. Enough people think we butcher the English language on a on a regular basis, Jay. So I'm doubling down. Again, we have another plot point that's going to seem dated. We've talked about the fax machine. We've talked about the answering machine. There's this really moving moment in this section. You know, Jake has been crushed so many times by Roland betraying him, by the death of Benny Slightman, and then by the death of Father Callahan. And it's really wearing on him. And you can sense that he's not his happy self in this book. And Roland seems to be concerned about him because he seems so down. But then there's this moving moment where Jake laughs for the first time. And Roland is happy to see Jake laughing. And why is Jake laughing again? It's because all the Doctor Doom costumes look like they're in a payphone booth at Grand Central Station where all the commuters would be on the phone calling Homer the office. And I just thought, yep. Payphone booths, all gone. Yep. Another older reference that's not going to date well, King, but nice try. But it makes sense for Jake's time and, and, and place. And Eddie's as well. You know, Eddie still gets it. It brings the whole quartet together. And Roland has no idea what they're talking about, but says, oh, if the three of them must know it true, it must be true. So he's happy. Mm-hmm. He's like one of those awkward, like laughing at the joke he doesn't get like, ha ha ha, yeah, payphones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that where we get the Aston from? That is all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 7 of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, Part 2, Chapters 5 through 8. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Crap, I got to get the freaking document open. Otherwise, I don't know the intro. No, I've said it 46 times.